As I mentioned, this is the first Lord's Day of a new month. It's our practice to have an open forum of discussion, but also as we've had a number of months in the past, uh, a little in the way of questions from you, you, I don't know if you've come prepared to ask anything. Um, I've come prepared to, with a backup plan, and so we give you the opportunity to say, okay, Pastor, what do you got? <laughs> you, can, you can do that just by not asking anything. Okay, what did you come to bring? Or you may come, you have a little question in the back of your mind, you're uncertain as to whether to ask it. Well, since I'm prepared to do something, I don't know if it's going to fill the full, full, fullness of time. I can begin, or you can begin. I'll leave, you, I'll leave it to you. So if you'd like me to begin, and uh, maybe if I run out of steam, <laughs> then you could supplement with questions as a possibility. But if you've come burning to ask a question this morning, fire away. Yes, Tom, please go ahead. Esther, in our, in our book study group, uh, we're looking at it, uh, the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Okay. And uh, in our introduction, you know, we've, we've looked at our study notes and our Bibles. I have a commentary that I've read um, discussing the, the, the um, the address to the letter to the Ephesians by mm-hmm. Paul. Okay. And there is some, um, I don't want to use the word controversy, but I guess some discussion as to whether that letter was specifically written to the to the church at Ephesus mm-hmm. or had it originally been more of a circular letter. Mm-hmm. Some of the manuscripts, I guess, ancient manuscripts, have a diff- may not contain the word Ephesus. That's correct. Um, and so there's some discussion in the commentary specifically about that potential circulatory letter and possibly later being added the word Ephesus or how that letter's addressed. So right. could you just give us uh, maybe some clarity on that? Well, I don't really know that I can. It is a matter of textual variance. And uh, I could say this about the letter to the Ephesians. There's less in that book of any personal notations where Paul... For instance, in the book of Philippians, he's mentioning uh, people, Epaphroditus, Odeus, Odeus and Suntachi. No, that's not the real name. But the two women are having a problem there, uh, Yodia and Syntyche. Um, and, and, of course, the book of Romans has all, you know, all the names of people that Paul says to grieve for him. You just don't have that in the Ephesian letters. So that would, in and of itself, lend itself to more of the idea of a, a circular letter. Uh, an encyclical that Paul is giving and is a general letter to the churches. Um, the other thing that, that, that is said is sometimes, since the book of Colossians, which is very similar in some ways to Ephesians, there's a lot that's in uh, Ephesians that is also there in the uh, Colossian letter, like the household code, it's sometimes called, where Paul directs uh, instruction to husbands and wives and children and then servants or slaves and masters, um, that has its parallel in um, uh, Colossians and Ephesians, and it also has, um, well, Peter. Peter has some of that in First Peter. Um, but other letters don't tend to have that, and so the similarity there, and the fact that Paul mentions in the Colossian letter uh, about a letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans that we don't have. Some people think that the Ephesian letter might be that letter he's referring to there. Again, we don't know. We don't know. Ephesus was certainly the leading city in Asia Minor. 
So if it was written for Laodicea, which is in Asia Minor, remember Laodicea, Ephesus, those are two places are mentioned in the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 uh, to the churches in Asia Minor. That was the area which is modern Turkey, modern uh, western Turkey, uh, was the ancient Roman province of Asia Minor. And uh, those seven churches of um, Colossians also was in Asia Minor. Ephesians was the leading city. And so in, 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 the, in the normal way that a letter like Jesus is sending to these seven churches, the normal way that it would go is it would probably begin in terms of, of, of uh, a circular letter going in a circle from city to city to city. You start in Ephesus. That's why the first church in Revelation 2 is to the church at Ephesus. And then all the way down to, I think Laodicea comes to the end. So, But if Paul is writing a letter to the to the Laodiceans, and it was intended to be a circular letter. Because it would start at Ephesus, that's how Ephesus might have gotten in there. That's a possibility. But again, we don't know. And in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter all that much. It is a letter that Paul wrote to the churches. Again, that's a matter of some dispute among those that bring arguments against what they call Paul's the the letters that were certainly written by Paul and then the others that may not have been but uh, Ephesians may have some controversy but in terms of the destination that's not really a material matter in my in my own mind so read the letter to the Ephesians to whoever it's written to it's uh, written to the church in all ages so but it may have been a, it may well have been an encyclical letter yes um, in, in addition to that. Um, the commentary I read, just if you read Ephesians and it says, Paul says, when I heard of your faith mm-hmm. uh, to the Ephesians, but we know the foundation of the Ephesus church and his missionary journeys, he was well established with the Ephesian church. So could you just address that, why he might use that term, when I heard of your faith in Ephesians? Um, yeah, and the love they have to all the saints. Address that as to, as to his strong, in addition to his strong uh, founding and foundation in the church and he spent many years there where that letter might have been written in that sequence of the founding of the church or the the uh, chronology there you know time period yeah again I don't know if I could go into technical details about introduction an introduction to a letter um in terms of the order it's it's considered one of the prison epistles because Paul speaks of being in in bonds for the gospel um but at any rate how However, he spent three, three and eight, the space of three and a half years, I think he says, uh, to the Ephesian elders in, in Miletus in Acts 20. Um, he hadn't been there in a, in a time, in a while. And so he heard a report in, in prison, uh, how the Ephesians were doing, and hence he reflects, when I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love that you have to all the saints, he says that he ceases not to make requests of, uh, of uh, the Father to give him the spirit of grace, of wisdom and uh, revelation and the knowledge of him, um, but uh, you know, uh, he, knew, he if it's in fact to the Ephesian church, which he was there for a long time, knew them knew them well. Um, that report would seem to give new information he didn't pr- previously have. If it's to some other church or just in a general letter to the to the region. It could have been a report that he'd received of Laodicea or other churches in the area, and he's writing to say, you know, he's happy to see the work of the gospel continue. 
again, I, I, those are those are questions you can't always, with any kind of certainty, answer. Um, uh, is that sufficient? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, it's good that you're having this study. Well, you have a, a book that's guiding you. Um, I have a commentary from the past that I personally had okay. that I'm looking at, but we're really just reading the scriptures. And, okay. And, and Excellent. In that introduction, I was just trying to clarify um, how and when that letter might have been written. In addition, you know, to the back. Yeah. So I was just trying to. Well, again, that's a matter that when we continue in the Pauline letters, I've been trying to do it in the order that I think they were written. But again, we don't know. But uh, just where I thought Gal- I think Galatians is early on, because I think he's written to the southern Galatian notion rather than northern Galatia. Anyway, um, so that's why I've been going in the in the order that I've been going. And so, definitely in my mind, it's written after Romans. It's written from a prison. Is it the Roman prison? A lot of people think that Paul was in prison for a time in Ephesus, and he may have written letters from Ephesus, and that's an idea that gets out there and it's circulated. Um, lots of ideas that are out there. A lot of people make their... We know he's in prison. Is that accord with the Roman imprisonment? Likely. But again, we don't know for certain, because he certainly saw the inside of a jail more than once in his missionary labors and travels. You have a, yes, uh, Tim? I have another question, but just piggybacking off of what Tom says. Okay. You know, and it has a lot to do with your teaching, too. Because um, uh, in so many of Paul's letters, that he gives us in the, in the beginning the, you know, the, the foundation of our salvation in Christ and all the blessings that are in Christ. And, and then he moves on to, uh, from there, onto, uh, you know, our obligations. Okay. Family and Christ, our mm-hmm. relationship with him. Yeah. Seems to be like that. yeah, that's pretty clear. Just, uh, he encourages them as the prisoner of the Lord to walk worthy of the calling with which they were called, and he moves into the practical. But all, everything before is he's telling about the calling in, in which they've been called. He mentions that matter of their calling several times. Yeah. And we just saw that in that first chapter. It's so loaded with so many of the blessings of who we are in Christ mm-hmm. that it really calls. For us, and I think sometimes I personally read over those things without really sitting and meditating on every aspect of those blessings. Mm-hmm. That, that as, a, as I do that, in times it's really been a blessing to me as far as you know how it relates to my walk before the Lord. You know. Yes. You know, I think that's one of the things we're yeah. seeing. Oh, good, good. Uh, but I do have a question. John, I was reading through John, and where the Lord meets the Samaritan woman in verse 21 of chapter 4. John chapter 4? Yes. He's speaking of, uh, you know, the, you know, where, where, where the Samaritans say they they worship, and where the Jews worship. Right. But he says in 21, he says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hours coming when you, and that's the question I have, when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, is, is he speaking to you, to her personally, or to you as a Samaritan right there? I, you know, it's, and I was thinking, well, if it's to her personally, he's, he's pretty much telling her that she's going to be a true worshiper of the Lord. Well, I think she will be, because that's why he went through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. 
Um, but it's, you say it's verse 21? Yeah, verse 21. I just want to know what the you Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> Could be either or. Yeah. Maybe both. I mean, because again, Jesus has come to this woman at the well. And I've gone through that before, with the well being the place where people seek after brides in the Old Testament. That's where Jacob got went to get... Uh, Rachel and uh, the servants of Abraham went to get Rebecca and Moses, God, Zipporah, all in a bride. And that theme of, the, of Jesus, the bridegroom, comes from the wedding of Cana into chapter two, into chapter 3, when John calls him the bridegroom, into chapter 4, where he was before this woman at a well. And uh, yeah, she, she's going to become his bride. But, but then she goes into the city and she says to the people in the city, come and see a man who saw me who told me what all things whatsoever I have done. Is, is, this, not, is this not the Messiah? And, and, they, and, and she doesn't come and see for yourself, and they do. They, and they say, we, you know, we didn't believe because you said it, but we've seen for ourselves. This is the Savior of the world, is what they declare. And, and so it's certainly the Samaritans who would come to worship God would no longer worship on that mountain. You know, the mountain he's referring to, of course, is Mount Gerizim. And again, that, that was in the north, and uh, remember that was the place where uh, the tribes would stand and utter the blessing. Ebal was the six tribes, they pronounced the curse, and on Mount Gerizim they would pronounce the blessings and, um, when they entered into the land. Uh, that's that's uh, uh, I think it's found in Numbers, and then it's fulfilled in the book of Joshua when they actually do it. And so, again, when the uh, Samaritans who only received the first five books of Moses, they didn't receive the best, the rest of the Old Testament, which really specifies that Jerusalem became the place where the temple was to be built and uh, God was to be worshipped. Uh, they worshipped on a different mountain, not Zion. They worshipped on Gerizim, and they had a temple there. In fact, and uh, one of the last things the uh, the um, the kings of the Hasmonean dynasty, the descendants of Judas Maccabees, when they had when they when they fought their war against the Syrians and received their independence, and Hanukkah is the celebration of that uh, liberation, and when the uh, the uh, supposedly the lights of the temple lasted for seven days, a miracle. That's why they have the menorah. Um, but the um, that group of people that were ruling in Jerusalem before the Romans took over, they actually fought a war uh, some 130 years before this uh, against the Samaritans, and the Jews destroyed their temple. So they worshiped still at the mountain, but they didn't have a temple anymore to worship in. And so Jesus is basically saying, don't go temple building, I'm the temple here, and the time will come when they're not going to worship you know, this, this dispute is going to be immaterial. It's not going to be where the Father is worshipped, but how the Father is worshipped. Neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anything else? So you're, you're all curious about what I came prepared to say? Well, what I came prepared, prepared to say, it, it's really the result of a lot of thinking I've been doing, I mentioned it last week, about the, the structure of the Beatitudes. And uh, I had a conversation with Jan about this last night as well, because she wasn't here for all of the sermons. 
And so she was a little bit confused as to why I was affirming there to be only seven and not nine. This is actually nine statements of blessing that you find in Matthew chapter 5. But I view the latter two, the one that has to do with persecution for righteousness sake, and the one that says, blessed are you when men shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, great is your reward in heaven, that that's not part of the first seven that have in my mind a very full picture of Christian character. That Jesus is painting a portrait of what the character of his people consists in. Um, And they are poor in spirit. They are mourners and they are meek and they do hunger and thirst for righteousness and they are merciful and they are pure and they are peaceable but they are not persecuted at all points necessarily at the same way, at the same time, in the same season and even if there is a season of no persecution it's not something that's inward, it's something that's outward it's determined by others it's determined by what people do to them and so the matter of persecution is a bit different uh, again Persecution is not something we are. It's something that happens to us because of other people's hatred of the character of the believer that the portrait of Christian character paints. They're really uncomfortable in the midst of people who are pure and peaceable and people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the rest and hating our character and our message as well. We're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, it's the righteousness that the Beatitudes confer or the Beatitudes describe that's the reason we were persecuted for righteousness sake we hunger and thirst for righteousness and hence we are persecuted for righteousness sake but that's not we do that's not something we do for to ourselves that's something others do for do uh, to us so there are seven and as I said this number seven um, get, opens up a world of opportunity to see the inner relations of the Beatitudes one to another it's not just a random collection of statements that has no interrelatedness. It has, in my mind, a very clear interrelatedness, both in terms of the content and also in terms of this, method, this way that it's structured in this number seven, as I pointed out to you a number of times. When you have seven, you can have three on each side of a middle. You can have three... On, 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 on the one side of the, the fourth thing and then three that follows the fourth thing and sure enough when you look at it the first three things and the latter three things differ very markedly that poor being poor in spirit and mourning and meek being meek that's all something that you just don't see I mean um, I just cannot say um, you know you you seem meek <laughs> How would I know? You'd have to have some kind of provocation brought against you. It's not something you're actively showing. Oh, look at me. I'm meek. It's not, in other words, Moses didn't go around saying what others seem to have said of him. He's the meekest man on the face of the earth. Look at how meek I am. Although Jesus did say he was meek and lowly in heart. I think that was to express his inner attitude so that people could come to him. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that when you see hungering and thirsting for righteousness... And you see mercy. That involves the things you really show, you display, that there's mercy in what you do, in how you give, how you relieve the hardships and sufferings that other people have. 
in the way that you um, spread around peace, uh, peacemakers. You're looking to be a peacemaker. And purity is that singleness of heart and devotion that serves God in the midst of a fallen world. And so I think those things are far more active. The others are a bit more passive. It's what, uh, what you are rather than what you do. Although, again, all of them have to do with what you are. But the latter part, on the other side of the fourth, are more active. There are more active graces at work in the world. And so that shows some measure of structure right there. And I've endeavored to point out the differences between those first three and the latter three in illustrations that I've given you. I've given you the illustration the first couple of weeks I was working with the idea of um, trees and buildings, uh, agriculture and construction. That if you're going to build a building tall, you've got you to make the foundation deep. You just can't put a, four, a you know a tall building on this on the on the ground or on sand. Even this building is not very tall, but yet they had to dig a foundation and put in the footings so that this uh, and they had to put down a concrete slab so in order to build upon a solid foundation. And so um, I believe the first three um, beatitudes are foundational to a life of righteousness manifested by mercy, peace, and purity. And then I also use the illustration of the agricultural things, is that in the, the redwood trees, the, the, uh, the roots that you don't see are, are, are deep. You just don't have these giant redwood trees that don't have a root system that's deeply embedded in the earth. If it, if it was, you, you know, you'd be able to push them over if you had enough strength to push the, over uh, a redwood. They, you know, they, they would topple. But they're rooted and they're grounded in the earth. And we're to be rooted and grounded in the things of the gospel. And those three first three graces, I think, is what God does to root us deeply in the reality of who we are and how we are in the fallen world, who we are in the midst of a fallen world that brings, brings provocation. And so it tells us what we're, we're not. We're, we're, we're not filled with ourselves. We're emptied of ourselves. There's no self sense of exorbitant or excessive self-worth. There's no sense of self-absorption that makes us not concerned about the world and its fallenness and in its neediness. We do sigh and cry for the abominations that are done in the land. And we're not filled with self-will. Everything that people do against us causes us to become resentful and vengeful. We're meek. And so... Uh, again, it, those are deeply rooted graces in which the character of the righteous in active righteousness, in active acts of mercy, purity, and peace are then displayed. So that's how I, I, I began it one Lord's Day, and then last week I went to the uh, picture of the inverted pyramid, of, of going down in the first three to righteousness where we become up we come up to the positive graces uh, my wife told me that in a book we read years ago I was trying to remember if Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary used the picture of an inverted pyramid and Jan said no he actually used the picture of steps of going up to the the top of the steps maybe like a ziggurat kind of the temple where you had steps that went up to the top and steps that went down and so Jesus is bringing us up to the place where we hunger and thirst for righteousness and then falling on the other side of that becomes 
the other three graces of mercy, uh, purity, and peace. Um, and then I also gave the illustration of basic training where they, they look to uh, tear you down to build you up. Tear you down to build you up. As if that's something akin to what God in his grace through the gospel does. Uh, tearing us down in terms of our self-will, self-worth, self-absorption, and the rest. And then building us up to another center. And I thought of another thing. And that's what that's where I'm leading to. I've told you all this up till now. But now, I want to give you something what I think might have well been in the mind of Matthew when he wrote this. And again, this is controversial, but in my mind, it's so sensible. And so, what I'm going to give you is what is called a chiasm. What is a chiasm? Well, it comes from the Greek letter chi. Um, you know, it's the first letter, the name of Christos. It's uh, Chi, Chi Alpha. Uh, is uh, Christ, uh, I forgot what it is that Chi Alpha stands for. But it's the Greek letter Chi. And the Greek letter Chi was used in literary uh, writings of the ancient world and in a number of ways to present truth in ways that I think fastens upon the memory upon the mind. Now remember that you talk about the, the letters of Paul. By the time Paul wrote his letters, there probably were not gospels already written. Maybe maybe Mark was written and in circulation by the time Paul was in his Roman prison. But it's likely it came, it came later. The gospels came later. And Luke more likely it came later because Luke was in um, he was in um, Caesarea when Paul was imprisoned there as part of the we sections of Acts and he might have been going about during the time of Paul's imprisonment doing things like research on his gospel when he says that he uh, he uh, sought to you know things the things that are, are, are believed most surely believed among us he, he carefully investigated those things so the fact that he gave us a, an account of, of Jesus birth from Mary's eyes from Mary's perspective probably meant he visited Mary and spoke with Mary, got that information from Mary. And, uh, but again, being led by God and given uh, the grace of the Spirit, he writes his gospel, but he writes his gospel at a much later time. But in the meantime, how was the words of Jesus and the message of Jesus propagated? Well, orally, there were no written gospels. And so it went from oral instruction. Uh, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's what Jesus told the disciples to do, teaching them. And so they went about teaching the things that Jesus said. And when you try to teach, well, first of all, you're looking to remember all the things that the Lord said. And then sometimes that's hard, even if you're living in a culture where that's how you learn. You know, in our culture, we're not really good listeners. One of the reasons we're not really good listeners is we can go home and um, we, we have it on tape. This is going to sermon audio later this week, so everything Pastor Gordon said this morning, even though I don't remember it, I can listen to it later on. Or I can consult my notes. i here writing notes about the things that are said so I can go over my notes. But just the things that are coming out of my mouth this morning, you're not going to go home and remember. It's one of the benefits of 
having you here for an hour, not just this week, but next week, and the week after, the week after, and the week after, is repetition of one of the great ways we learn and one of the great ways that we remember. Jesus, of course, went from place to place many times saying the same thing. But if you're going to remember things, sometimes it's nice to put them into a little structure to help you to remember them. And I believe this idea of a chiasm was not just something that was... Um, you know, just literarily appealing or dramatic or something like that. I think it was a, what we call a mnemonic device to help the memory, so that you could more easily recall. What were those seven things Jesus said or what? Well, listen to the chiasm and see if that would help us. And what happens with the chiasm is you begin with the first thing. Of course, the first thing is Jesus is blessed of the poor in spirit. So that goes here. That's the first part of the country. And then the second part would be are the mourners. Blessed are they who mourn. And then you have meekness. And we're going to put meekness here not at the, the extremities of the chiasm because this is feeding into uh, this thing here. So you have meekness. It comes here. And then where the, the lines cross, the central thing is righteousness hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then you have mercy. And then you have purity. And then you have peaceableness. Uh, peacemaking. Obviously peacefulness. I think the checks don't But if, if this is how we conceive it, 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 it can be a way to m- m- be reminded of things. And, and, and it's true on certain levels. If there is a conceive of the qualities that fit, fill, feed into meekness and then make us desire righteousness, we can see everything above the line are the things that lead to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Everything above the place where the two parts of the X or the chiasm mean everything above is what induces or leads to or brings us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the mourners who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the meek that hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's mourners, mourners that hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is all the stuff that makes us dissatisfied with ourselves. And it says, no, we need something in place of ourselves. Well, we need righteousness. I will say more about righteousness this morning in the morning message. And then everything from the place of righteousness feeds out into the positive graces of mercy, purity, and peaceableness. And righteousness is the central thing, as we're going to see, see this morning. It's the central need for life. Hungry and thirsting, just like you need... You know, I'm going to give an illustration... Uh, I won't. I'll, I'll say it. But you, you hunger and thirst for what is needed. If you don't have a, if you don't have hunger and thirst, you, you're going to die. You're not going to eat. And that's one of the things when people are sick, they lose their appetite. They no longer hunger. They no longer want to eat or drink. And, and, and hence, they're on the road to uh, dying because we need food and we need drink to, 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 to sustain our lives. And, and what sustains spiritual life is righteousness. It's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
And all these things here that come from righteousness are aspects of righteousness. The righteous are merciful. The righteous are peaceable. The righteous are pure. Okay? Well, if that's true, uh, that's just one way to see how this helps to conceive of it and to remember it. That you have certain things that feed into righteousness and certain things that flow from righteousness. But then, this chiasm also serves in another direction. Is that it matches up. The first and the last, the second and the sixth, the third and the fifth. (laughs) It matches those things up. There's something about those things on the opposite ends of the chiasm that match up. And the question is, does it? Is it true? I want to suggest that it does. I want to suggest that it does. I want to suggest that we begin with poverty and we end in abundance. But this is intentional. This is poverty here. We are poor in spirit. Poverty stricken. We're beggars. We don't have anything to render to God or to give to God. And what is peace? Well, again, the, the Greek idea, Irene, where did you get your name from? Irene, it means the cessation of conflict, which is a very good thing. But the Hebrew idea of shalom is the presence of abundance. It's flourishing. It's, uh, uh, again, the righteous shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And so you move on there from poverty to abundance. So you can relate those two. You start with poverty, you end in abundance. You start with poverty of spirit, you end in peace. What about mourning? And what about purity? Well, mourning is certainly sorrow over the plight of a fallen world. So you're beginning here with sorrow. What is purity? Now, a lot of times we think of purity, we think of ethical purity. Um, We think of different kinds of purity. Um, You think of... uh, Ritual purity, that you couldn't go into the temple unless there were certain rites of purification that you went through. Uh, but actually, what, what this word purity simply means is oneness or an undividedness of mind, heart, and intention. The purity is something that is committed to a singular thing. It's what, what this, what's written in the psalm so where it says, Unite my heart to fear your name. That's a desire for purity. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I also seek after, I will, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. That's a pure desire. That's unmixed with any other element. See, impurity is when other elements come in and it, 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 it adulterates or it, it makes impure what is pure. Purity is to have a unity of heart, mind, and purpose. Doris, you have a question? Mind, heart, I think it's a purpose or will. Yeah, yeah. So there is this unity. So you think about how Paul pictures the church with one heart and with one spirit united together for the faith of the gospel. Purity is what unites us in the service to a lost and fallen world that we mourn over. So I think you move there from sorrow to service. It's not just that you're 
mourning over the world and sorrowful for the world and actually endeavoring by God's grace to do something for the world in the way of your purpose and your prayers and your intentions to see the gospel go forth, forward with one heart, with one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The purity of our design and intent. We're not after yours, but you. <laughs> we don't want your money. We're not ha- we, we don't have other motives. We're not looking to make merchandise of the word of God. We have pure motives. God's honor and praise and your good. That's purity. That's how purity works and how purity operates. And then with this matter of meekness, again, remember the sermon last week, is at least with regard to people who provoke us, the, the, the unrighteous, the, the, the wicked who seem to prosper, and we're troubled, we're vexed, we're overwhelmed by the things that the wicked do. The tendency is to be vengeful. The tendency is to face the world in the midst of all of its injustices with a heart of ill will. So let's say meekness is that which cancels out ill will. But again, it's, it's a negative thing. We, we, we don't come to the world with ill will. We, we won't engage in vengeance. We won't be mean and unkind and, 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 ho- and horror show to the people of the world. But it's not just a negative thing. What's the positive thing? How about goodwill? Mercy. We come to the world in its sin, in its injustices, with a heart of goodwill. There's a better way than to live in bitterness, enmity, hatred, vengeance, and all the rest. So we are a people who show the goodwill of God and the heart of God's mercy. Um, So you see how these things relate? There's this internal structure to the Beatitudes that, again, I think was helpful when they didn't have Matthew to read for, okay, well, we remember what Jesus said. <laughs> he began with poverty and spirit. He ended with peaceableness. He, he, he talked about sorrow, but, and, uh, and then he, he moved into serving. He, he began with meekness, and then he moved into mercy. He began with these negative things that all lead into righteousness, and righteousness leads out into these other things. And so that's why I think the structure is meant to teach. The structure is meant to help people remember the content of the Beatitudes. So, again... I hope you don't think that's artificial, uh, but I think it's something that does reflect something of the content of it and the fact that it is placed in a chiastic structure, and I think by design. I don't know. It's one of the questions I love to ask Matthew when we get to glory. But I do see that there is, I mean, that happens for a reason. Why do you start there and there? Why does the second thing seem to parallel that? It would be very hard to do this with any of the other things. To try to match together, let's say one and you know, one and six and two and, and and seven. I mean, I imagine you could do it if you're creative enough. But I just think it's more natural to see it in the way that I've described it, because it does seem to me to have a structure that's chiastic. And again, that is is something you see often in the scriptures. You do, you really do. It's not just something some literary. Uh, commentator trying to find literary structures in the scripture have imposed upon the text. It really is there. It really is there. <clears throat> Any questions or comments? I just have an offshoot question. 
Okay. All two questions are allowed. Relating to Kyleism, which is a way of looking at the new kingdom, you know, the, the millennial thing. No, that that's that's the Latin term for uh, for uh, oh, one thousand. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no. This uh, chiasm it relates to the heat, the Greek letter key or chi, okay, which is uh, an X. At least in, is it in the capitalization of it, it looks just like an X. I actually read that, but I forgot it. Thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's uh, millennialism in the uh, Latin, sometimes called um, uh, Killianism, I think it is, something like that. And that comes from the Latin translation of a thousand. Yeah. Jan, please. Total speculation. Total speculation. We, we allow speculation in Sunday school. We don't do it in morning sermons. But <laughs> so, do you think Jesus taught chiastically? Or did Matthew take his material and present it chiastically as uh, a, a teaching tool? I believe it's the latter. And I believe, I believe for this reason. If you were to stand up in the pulpit this morning and read the Sermon on the Mount, we'd be out of here in 15 minutes. Huh? Maybe less, depending on how fast I read. You know, in all likelihood, Jesus spoke for hours. Instructing his hearers, and, and what you have in the Bible is like you know how the stenographer sits down and takes your hand in order to rem- in order to, he, maybe they're looking to write a, 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 a larger transcript, but it's not an exact transcript. You take things down in shorthand in order to remember the key points, and I believe in these again the problem with written communication. John says, if all the things that Jesus said and did were to be written in a book, the world cannot contain all the books that could be written. So if we were just to have a direct transcript of all of Jesus' teaching, I mean, Luther's works are 57 volumes, <laughs> at least in some of the English versions. What would Jesus' collected writings or collected works be like if we were to take verbatim a written transcript of everything our Lord ever said. We, we don't have that in the Bible. We don't have a written transcript of everything that Jesus said. We have shorthand. We have the, those who heard and those who came by the Spirit's help to understand the things the Lord was saying, how related to the Old Testament. They're giving us the shorthand. Here's the gist of it. Here's what Jesus said. This is what Jesus taught. Here's what he taught about blessedness. And we're going to tell it to you in language that really is, is hearkening to the whole Old Testament revelation. So, because they were taught by Jesus how to connect all this to the Old Testament as well. For 40 days, he went in and out among them, talking to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God, showing them from the laws, the prophet and the Psalms, the things concerning himself. Right? Right? And so they're writing from that perspective of knowing all these things and understanding all these things and they're putting it down in a way that number one is readable and number two is not going to completely wear us down and exhaust us with too much information and yet sufficient information to tie it all in to the rest of what scripture says about Jesus. Again, it's not as if we're just beginning to learn about the Messiah when we come to the Gospels. We, we've been prepared for him in, the thing, in terms of the things that, were, you know, that came before. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. And so we read it in the light of that, and we read it in the light of the things that the apostles heard and 
teaching them all things whatsoever he has commanded. Not, not exhaustively, but yet in terms of a full account of all the essentials, all the things that are essential to Christian life. I mean, did, did Jesus give an 8th, ninth, 10th, 14th beatitude? He may have. I don't know. But they went and they said, look, I don't know if people will remember 14, but they probably will remember 7. And we, we put it in a way that, you know, we've remembered it, and we, we, you know, we have digested it as we've talked about what he said. I mean, I think the apostles just sat together and said, remember what he said? Remember when he told us that? And they probably talked to, together. And so, well, you know, yeah, I remember that because I see it in relationship to... They might have put this together, you know, sitting around, uh, you know, after church, <laughs> fellowshipping, talking to one another. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think Jesus... I don't think the words we have in the Sermon on the Mount are a written transcript of everything that our Lord said. Yeah. So, yeah, there is on the part of the gospel writers a shaping of things. There, there really is. Um, again, they're, they're, they're preachers. They're teachers of the gospel. And they, and they want to write in such a way that they're not going to lose people, but they're going to inform people. They're going to instruct people. John says, I write these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And believing might have life in his name. He has, a, he has an evangelist heart of wanting to present Jesus in a way in which the essentials about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what faith in Jesus involves, that he's not concerned to give an exhaustive biography. And so we don't know Jesus' favorite color. We don't know Jesus, uh, you know, what what was his favorite food. You know, we don't know a host of things about Jesus because, again, the Gospels are not a complete uh, biography as we you know, I'm reading uh, I'm listening on uh, Audible to um, the first of four volumes of Robert Caro's exhaustive Life of Lyndon Baines Johnson really really good really interesting but I mean there's not much I don't know about life in Texas <laughs> of rainfall in Texas of how things grow in Texas, what happens with the soil, uh, going uh, going west of Austin and east of Austin. He tells it all to you. There's four volumes in which to do it. <laughs> so you learn a lot, but again, that's not required reading for, for anybody. And it's not, if, if, I mean, the Bible is like required reading. And God does not burden us down with the unessentials, but he gives us the essentials. Tim? Yeah, I was just thinking how you, we've learned, you know, um, that, you know, come, the gospel and the history of the nation comes out of a certain time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like, uh, you know, like the, like you're telling us about the suzerain and the best, vestal, the vestal? Well, a part of a suzerain was the overlord. The vassal was the just the history yeah. and what existed at that time, right? In, in, uh, in time, and God communicates in that language. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess if I don't know what I'm asking, but uh, even something like this that comes out of that that time, uh, do you do you think it uh, how God uses? 
Yeah. To well, convey his truth. Yeah. Well, I'll put it. I'll put it. Out of that, that time of history. Yeah. Yeah. Again, our belief in inspiration is that it's the word of God in the language of men. That God speaks in human language. And human language involves different figures of speech. It involves different literary devices. I mean, I don't. There, you know, there's all kinds of things, especially when you read it in the original language. There are things in the original language that are just untranslatable into English, unless you can't do a very good job of it. There's certain ways in which things sound in Hebrew that, uh, I mean, when, when God's going to describe, I think I mentioned, I mentioned this last week, or I think I mentioned when he describes the condition of the world when it was uninhabitable, it's almost eerie. Tove <laughs> It's the kind of thing you want to see around a campfire in a dark night. Tove <laughs> But it, it is kind of an eerie thing. And God communicates his words in that kind of language. I mean, there are other ways to say things, but he says things in a way, in ways many times that, um, it conveys um, a lot of things that you know, contain repetition. Uh, I mentioned uh, dying, you will die. Um, again, points of emphasis. This is how the ancients spoke in the Hebrew language. And, and it's a language that is uh, filled with um, subtleties that, um, again, the English translation doesn't fully convey. That's why I think teachers should learn the original languages, at least be able to work with the original languages uh, in order at least to be, you know, preachers on the Lord's Day. I, I will make that a hard, fast rule. Because, uh, you know, I think people can preach unto edification who don't have that kind of background. But I think there's something people should aspire to. Because I think in this, and I think also we have so many helps now today with the computer that you really can learn a lot about the ancient structure of language and things like that. Anyway, so again, I don't think this is anything that detracts from the fact of divine inspiration. Uh, again, God speaks in human language. I guess what I'm trying to say, I think, is that knowing the history and the time that it was and all these literary devices and even like the text there, it just enhances the, the, the understanding of, of the scriptures and yeah. yeah, again, we shouldn't conceive that these biblical writers, they just sat down and there was kind of like a voice in their head that told them, write this, write this, write this, write this, write this. No, they sat down and prayed. <laughs> Lord, uh, I've done, Luke would say, I've done all the work of investigation. I've talked to this one, this one, this one, this one. Lord, give me to you know call to mind what I've heard, what I know. Help me to say it in the best way. And I think they thought through it. I think they thought through it well. And I thought they, they wanted to make it interesting. They wanted to make it um, to where the readers could um, not grow tired about what they were saying. I thought they tried to use whatever literary devices they could to, to make the instruction clear and, and interesting. I mean, Jesus did speak in parables. And he had reasons for that. And uh, that's a kind, again, a kind of uh, literary device that he uses. Uh, Psalms uh, are filled with different forms of literary device, what's often called Hebrew parallelism. And uh, anyway, that's all God's way of, uh, again, the Lord cannot speak to us in some heavenly language. (laughs) We wouldn't 
understand it. It's not the, and, and, and we can never know him as he knows himself. So there's a whole lot of condescension to who and what we are, our capacities, our abilities to understand. And, and God, I believe he comes down to our level. And, uh, and he says, here it is. And here it is in ways that is really interesting and really memorable. I hope you'd walk away from this time this morning and you'll know the order of the Beatitudes better than you ever knew it before because you see there's some order to it. You see that you know, poverty of spirit and mourning and meekness leads to hungering and thirsting for righteousness that flows out into the ways of righteousness that we live in the world in mercy purity and peaceableness and I hope the ways that these things relate to one another becomes another uh, fortifying uh, uh, you know, making it more and more clear and concrete in our minds and how it all relates to each other. Doris. I mean, to me, there's all kinds of ways that you see righteousness as really being central to, to, to life. The fact that the way in which we're saved is a way in which God is, is, is righteous. We, we, we translate it just. And he justifies those who believe in Jesus. It's actually it's the same word. Righteousness and justice in that sense, or to justify, are really the same word. God imputes righteousness to us who believe. Well, why does he impute righteousness to us? Well, because he is righteous. He is the righteous God who requires righteousness. And we cannot uh, hunger and thirst for him if righteousness is not something that is taken care of for us. That we, we have a righteousness in Jesus, and then we have a righteousness that we have in the living out of the Christian life. And there's a, that word righteousness, it meets us everywhere. It meets us in God himself. He's the righteous God. It meets us in Jesus. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he's called. Um, it meets us in God's law, being uh, holy, just, and ju- just as righteous and, and spiritual. Uh, it meets us at every point. Righteousness is really at the heart of the biblical gospel. And in fact, Paul says that, that, he is, that, that, that uh, for in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As is written, the just shall live by faith. It's at the heart of um, Christian standing with God, of Christian life with God, of Christian uh, worship of God, uh, of Christian living before God. Righteousness comes in the midst of of all of that. Uh, Jesus could speak about righteousness in chapter 6. He says, uh, be careful not to do your righteousnesses before men, to be seen of them. And then he breaks that down in terms of giving, prayer, and fasting. That's all part of righteousness. Uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added unto you righteousness is the heart of almost everything because it's, it's kind of like you know 
your necessary food. <laughs> uh, food and drink. Can't live without it. Righteousness. Spiritually, you can't live without it. Uh, time's gone. I hope this has been interesting. I hope it's been helpful. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time in considering these matters. and Lord, these are weighty matters indeed. And we're thankful you do condescend to our weakness and providing us a revelation of yourself that is, is more than adequate and is totally suitable to our needs as sinners. And it brings us to the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray your blessing would be with us as we greet one another this morning, as we enter into the morning hour. Look upon us with your favor. Grant us, O God, um, a day of spiritual blessedness, and give us, we pray, from even as a result of our gathering this morning, um, to use what we hear and to live lives of fruitful, of fruitful. Um, bearing witness to your to your grace and your goodness and all we are as your people and in all that we do we'd ask these things in the name of jesus our lord amen